0: Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Welcome to episode 341 for September 11th, 2023. What we may lovingly call the Rolling Thunder edition. I'm recording in the middle of a rather serious thunderstorm, actually. A lot of lightning and loud thunder, so you may hear some of that come through. I'm really excited. I just yesterday had the chance to interview Kashmir Hill, a tech reporter, famous tech reporter for the New York Times. Uh, we talked about facial recognition technology, Clearview AI, and her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, which comes out in just a week or so. And uh, therefore, we will be dropping that interview next Monday, right before her book comes out. You can pre-order it now, of course. Uh, it was a great discussion. I've been a great admirer of Kashmir for uh, many years. And uh, when she broke that Clearview AI story, I remember talking about it here on the show. So it was such a great. Uh, opportunity to get a chance to talk to her in person and and she of course has interviewed uh, at several occasions the, the Juan Ton Tat the um, CEO and founder of Clearview along with a lot of other people related to that company. So anyway, it's a fascinating interview. It's a great book. Uh, I was able to get an advanced copy of it and uh, only had time to skim it prior to the interview. I cannot wait to read it fully. Uh, But it looks just great. I kept getting sucked in and and trying to skim it, and just find that it was hard to skim. I I wanted to read the whole thing. Uh, Anyway, that will be next week. So be sure to tune in to that. So we have a news show for you this week, as usual. Uh, I'm going to start off with an article from The Verge about how to disable Chrome's new targeted ad tracking their new topics thing that is pretty much rolled out to everybody now and i'll tell you how to turn it off got a report from citizen lab about a really nasty couple of zero day bugs in uh, apple products so you're going to definitely want to update your apple products all of them uh, because these were being actively exploited probably not against regular people like you and i but nevertheless i would still get them updated but this article will talk about how those bugs were found and fixed Then I've got a really interesting story about how the FBI managed to take over the QuackBot uh, botnet and actually tricked it into uninstalling its malware. And this is a big victory. The UK has backed down on its law to basically backdoor encryption, thanks to pressure from Apple and WhatsApp, among others. It's a little more nuanced than that, but we'll talk about that in a second. There's a new tricky malware being spread through malicious ads. I'll tell you how to watch out for that. Got a little bit of an update on the, the impacts of the LastPass breach. Uh, it looks like what the crooks are doing mostly with uh, that information that they sold from LastPass is trying to find cryptocurrency keys and stealing people's crypto money. Apple has just put out a very rare uh, response to somebody challenging them on their CSAM protection that they tried to implement, got a lot of pushback on, and eventually abandoned. Uh, Well, there's still groups out there trying to get Apple to put it back, and Apple had a very thoughtful reply to that, which we will discuss. Kias and Hyundais are still being stolen like crazy uh, across (laughs) many, many cities, and a lot of them are suing, uh, insurance companies are suing them because they haven't fixed these problems yet and probably shouldn't have had the problems to begin with, so I'll give you an update on that. Also related to cars, there was a new study just published by Mozilla as part of their Privacy Not Included initiative about car privacy, and it's just horrendous. Basically, they said that cars are the least private products they've ever, ever tested. And then finally, an interesting bit of research about Chrome browser extensions, and it's not honestly really limited to Chrome, I don't believe, but uh, they studied Chrome extensions and found out that they are getting access to really sensitive information, but it shouldn't honestly have come as much as of a surprise. Um, So I think it's a, a cautionary tale that is worth discussing. And then we'll get to my tip of the week, which will be the final and fourth part in my series on securing your home network. So let's get right to it. All right, first up, this is from The Verge. And it's just a short article here. This summer, Google began rolling out its new Topics API, which we have discussed on the show a couple times before, which, quote, allows your browser to share information with third parties about a user's interests while preserving privacy, unquote. A part of Google's new Privacy Sandbox, the API API is supposed to replace third-party cookies that have been following us around for many years now, reporting where we go and what we buy, among other info. The Topics API was included in July's Chrome 115 release, and if you don't have it yet, you will soon. If the idea of sharing information about your interests with third parties doesn't thrill you, you can easily turn it off. Here's how. In Chrome, start at the three dots in the upper right-hand corner and go to Settings, Privacy and Security, Add Privacy. You'll see three categories, ad topics, which assumes your interest based on your browsing history, site suggested ads, which suggests ads based on sites you visited, and ad measurement, which shares data with sites to help them measure the effectiveness of their advertising. Click on each. If you want, you can pause to find out more about what interests and sites Google has been associated with you. You can even just turn off subcategories for each. For example, under ad topics, you could block business and industrial, but keep computer and video games active. However, if you want to save yourself time, as you go into each of these three categories, just toggle each one off and you're done. Of course, it isn't a foolproof privacy method. For example, individual sites can still own their own cookies, tracking pixels and other methods of collecting data about you. But it's a start. And if that isn't enough, you can look into some more privacy centric browsers such as DuckDuckGo and Brave. So yeah, I've been telling you guys this forever. Don't use Chrome. I mean, it's a functionally it's a great browser even security wise it's a pretty good browser but privacy wise it's just an utter nightmare you just have to assume since it is owned by Google and Google is an ad company that they basically know everything you do in that web browser this topics API thing is very interesting I think it's a it's a noble effort to try to you know have a decent compromise but for me, it's just not worth it. I mean, I I don't want anybody tracking me at all. I'd rather have context-based ads and not behavioral-based ads. So I would just go through and turn all this off. Or like this thing says, use a different browser. Uh, I personally prefer the Firefox browser with some with a couple of good extensions. The Brave browser is fine. There's a new Mulvad browser, which is kind of interesting. DuckDuckGo has its own browser, at least on mobile, I think. I, I'm a Firefox guy personally. But the common thing of all that is none of those are Chrome. I would just not be using Chrome. All right, moving on. Uh, the NSO group, which is responsible for the Pegasus mercenary spyware tool, has been exploiting a couple different zero-click, zero-day exploits on Macs and iOS devices. This has been fixed, so you need to update your devices to get this fixed. But let me read briefly about what happened here. And this is from Citizen Lab, who does some great work. Last week, while checking the device of an individual employed by a Washington, D.C.-based civil society organization with international offices, Citizen Lab found an actively exploited zero-click vulnerability being used to deliver NSO Group's Pegasus Mercenary Spyware. We refer to the exploit chain as Blast Pass. The exploit chain was capable of compromising iPhones running the latest version of iOS uh, at the time of this writing 16.6 without any interaction from the victim. That's the zero-click part. The exploit involved pass kit attachments containing malicious images sent from an attacker iMessage account to the victim. We expect to publish a more detailed discussion of the exploit chain in the future. Citizen Lab immediately disclosed our finding to Apple and assisted in their investigation. Apple issued two CVEs related to this exploit chain. And it gives the CVEs if you care to look them up. We urge everyone to immediately update their devices. We encourage everyone who may face increased risk because of who they are or what they do to enable lockdown mode. And I'll come back to that in a second. We believe in Apple security engineering and architecture team has confirmed to us that lockdown mode blocks this particular attack. We commend Apple for their rapid investigative response and patch cycle, and we acknowledge the victim and their organization for their collaboration and assistance. This latest find shows once again that civil society is targeted by highly sophisticated exploits and mercenary spyware. Apple's update will secure devices belonging to regular users, companies, and governments around the globe. The Blast Pass discovery highlights the incredible value to our collective cybersecurity of supporting civil society organizations. So yeah, I mean, I I guess what they're saying there is because they have been involved in protecting these organizations, that allowed them to find this exploit and report it to Apple and get it fixed. So Apple's lockdown mode is something I talked about recently because I turned it on when I went to... um, uh, DEF CON, which I, I kind of did, all, honestly, mostly just to kind of test it out because I'd been wanting to test it for a while and see how it worked. It honestly was easy peasy. It was just nothing to it. You turned it on. I honestly didn't notice a difference. I mean, Apple kind of describes this as this really severe lockdown of your, of your device and, and, and is going to cause you problems. And you really don't need to do it unless you're like an investigative journalist or a dissident or a politician or, you know, one of these very small classes of people. But honestly, if you're at all worried about this stuff, just turn it on. It's really not that big of a deal. The only thing I think you might notice is that when someone sends you a link that you don't get a preview of the link. Uh, That's one of the things that lockdown mode does is it doesn't automatically go look at that website for you to try to show you a preview preview of what it's going to be, which I think is basically what was happening in this case in terms of what was exploited, something along those lines. But, you know, if 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 you're not a power user and you just want to be that extra safe, turning on lockdown mode is easy to do and really not that intrusive. So anyway, again, bottom line here, update all your devices, your iPhones, iPads, Macs, get them updated because there is an active exploit out there and you want to make sure that you are protected. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch and we've got some good news uh, about an FBI operation. A U.S. government operation has dismantled the infrastructure of the notorious QuackBot malware, which officials say caused hundreds of millions of dollars of damage worldwide. In an announcement on Tuesday, the FBI said that it had successfully, quote, disrupted and dismantled, unquote, the QuackBot malware and had identified more than 700,000 infected computers worldwide, including more than 200,000 in the United States. The Department of Justice also announced the seizure of more than $8.6 million in cryptocurrency from the QuackBot cybercriminal organization, which will now be made available to victims. The operation, which was carried out in partnership with law enforcement agencies in France, Germany, the Netherlands, Romania, Latvia, and the United Kingdom, is described as the largest U.S.-led financial and technical disruption of a botnet infrastructure leveraged by cybercriminals to commit ransomware, financial fraud, and other cyber-enabled criminal activity. To dismantle the botnet, the FBI gained lawful access to QuackBot's infrastructure and redirected QuackBot traffic to FBI-controlled servers, which instructed infected computers to download an uninstaller file. This uninstaller file was created by law enforcement to untether the victim's computers from the QuackBot botnet, preventing further installation of malware through QuackBot. During this operation, uh, named Operation Duck Hunt, the FBI said it recovered the stolen credentials, including email addresses and passwords, of more than 6.5 million victims, adding that its international partners identified quote unquote millions more. The FBI also announced the seizure of 52 servers, which it said would permanently dismantle the botnet. Quackbot, also known as Qbot or Quackbot, which is the way I was pronouncing the other one as well. Anyway, it's weird. The other one is spelled Q-A-K-B-O-T. Who spells something like that? Anyway was first detected in 2008, making it one of the longest-running botnets. The malware, which first emerged as a banking trojan, infects devices primarily through phishing emails containing malicious links or attachments. Once a target taps the link or downloads the attachment, QuackBot would deploy additional malware to the computer to become part of a botnet network that could be controlled remotely. In recent years, QuackBot became the botnet of choice for some of the most infamous ransomware gangs, including Conti, Prolock, Egregor, Revil, Megacortex, and Black Basta. These ransomware gangs received approximately $58 million in ransom payments in the last 18 months alone, according to the FBI, and combined racked up more than 40 victims, including healthcare providers and government agencies. According to today's announcement, these victims include a power engineering firm based in Illinois, financial services organizations based in Alabama, Kansas, and Maryland, a defense manufacturer based in Maryland, and a food distribution company in Southern California. The U.S. State Department's Rewards for Justice program was announced, has announced awards of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification of the QuackBot operators. So that's good news. And it's it's always interesting, I think, when the uh, law enforcement organizations manage to take over uh, the offending servers and actually use them to their benefit to dismantle the, all the things that have been done. So uh, that that's very clever. All right, next up, we have a really big win, uh, some big news out of the UK. And this is from Apple Insider. And it's got a lot of snark, but I fully uh, support the snark. Here we go. An unenforceable and entirely politically motivated law that could have seen Apple, iMessages, and WhatsApp withdraw from the UK has been watered down to a face-saving compromise. The UK's calamitous decision to leave the European Union has left it with a raft of systemic problems that now include its school buildings being unsafe – but its politicians have attempted to divert attention by taking up an absurd online safety bill. If it had passed in its original form, it would have required Apple and other firms to effectively shut down the end-to-end encryption that is needed for privacy. Apple denounced the plans and threatened to pull both iMessages and FaceTime from the UK if it became law. WhatsApp then followed suit. Today, the law has its final debate in Parliament, but ahead of that, the Financial Times said that regulator Ofcom will introduce a new clause that effectively ends it. The law will most likely pass the debate, but it will be rendered powerless. Originally, it had said that companies like Apple would be required to allow the UK government to scan and monitor any phone, ostensibly in order to search for child abuse images. Now it still says that, but with a significant climb down. And this is a quote from Ofcom quote a notice to companies such as Apple can only be issued where technically feasible and where technology has been accredited as meeting minimum standards of accuracy in detecting only child sexual abuse and exploitation content, No such technology exists, nor is it feasible that there will ever be a system that only allows the good guys to break end-to-end encryption. So the law is dead iMessage's FaceTime and WhatsApp will continue unaffected, but the UK government can still get a new cycle in which it claims to have come down hard on big tech. However, it isn't just big tech firms that objected to the proposals. Security experts in the UK signed an open letter against the plans. Nor is this a new issue. In 2017, a former head of British intelligence services, service MI5 decried plans to break and end encryption too. As recently as August of 2023, however, the UK government was insisting that the proposals were not anti-encryption. So the climb down is not because of technology arguments or security or following advice. It appears to be directly in response to Apple and WhatsApp announcing that they would withdraw their services from the UK. All right. So that's obviously there's a lot of slant to that article, uh, whoever wrote that. But basically, the way, I, the way I interpret this is, is they put a clause, uh, you know, some sort of a or clause into this bill that, that basically renders it useless because they said, here's all the things we want you to do, but you can only, but only do these things if it's technically feasible. And it's it's just not. So I mean, I guess you could argue the thing is still on the books, and they could still try to eventually, you know, enforce it, maybe, and and claim that there are technical means by which to do this. I I don't know. It's still a mess. But everything I've read about this is interpreting it as basically a huge win for end end encryption and a positive result from Apple and WhatsApp pushing back and saying, "Hey, this we're not going to do this. We're not. If you force us to do this, then we're just not going to operate in your country." And in that game of uh, political chicken, it looks like the the UK government blinked. So it's not the best possible news, but it is good news. All right, next up. All right, another cautionary tale. Uh, This one is from Tom's Guide. Malvertising or malicious advertising has long been a threat for Windows PCs, but hackers are increasingly targeting the best MacBooks and other Apple computers by using bad ads to spread Mac malware. According to a report from Malwarebytes, a new malvertising campaign is being used to infect vulnerable Macs with the Atomic Stealer malware. First advertised on dark web forums back in April of this year, Atomic Stealer is a powerful malware strain that can not only steal crypto, but also passwords from web browsers and even Apple Keychain. Up until now, the cybercriminals who have paid for access to this malware as a service offering. Have mostly used pirated software to distribute Atomic Stealer. However, that appears to be changing, according to Malwarebytes, who discovered a malvertising campaign that uses bad ads to infect unsuspecting Mac users with the malware. When downloading a new program or app for their Mac, many users often type in its name into Google and click on the first search result, as they believe that will lead them to what they're looking for. Unfortunately, that is exactly what you shouldn't do. You see, Google Search displays ads at the top of the page, and you need to scroll down to get to the actual search results. Many people have likely figured this out by now, but many haven't, and this is how hackers game Google Search in their malvertising campaigns. By buying ads that match well-known and established brands, hackers are able to trick potential victims into visiting their phishing sites as if they were an official site. This is a lot easier than using phishing emails and other tactics that that could be spotted and stopped by security software. In the example above from malwarebytes and there's a picture here if you want to click on that uh, on the link in the show notes the ad itself impersonates the financial charting platform trading view however if you take a closer look at the address the ad points to you'll notice that there are special font characters that make it appear like the company's actual website to the untrained eye Clicking on this ad takes potential victims to a phishing site with download buttons for Windows, Mac, and Linux. While the Windows and Linux buttons download the NetSupport RAT, or uh, Remote Access Trojan, the Mac 1 downloads the Atomic Stealer malware. Instead of needing to be copied into the apps folder on your Mac, the downloaded app impersonating TradingView comes with special instructions on how to open it in order to bypass Apple's Gatekeeper security software. Gatekeeper is designed to enforce code signing so that only apps signed with an Apple developer signature can be installed on macOS. Since this installation file containing the Atomic Stealer malware isn't signed correctly, it's actually bundled in an ad hoc signed app so its permissions can't be revoked. Once launched, it will keep prompting victims for their user password in a never-ending loop until they finally give in. With your Mac's user password in hand, the hackers behind this campaign can steal all sorts of personal and financial data from your computer. Once this is done, the malware sends the stolen data back to a command and control server controlled by the hackers behind this campaign. This data is then used to commit fraud or even identity theft. Although your Mac comes with Apple's own malware scanner in the form of XProtect, you still need to be careful online. For instance, you should only download new programs or apps from established companies, or to really be on the safe side, only from the Mac App Store. Likewise, when searching for a program on Google Search, and it parenthetically says, or any other search engine for that matter, but i will that's not quite true. I'll come to back to that. You're going to want to scroll down until you find the official website instead of clicking on the ads that appear first in the search results. Malvertising has been going on for years, but it's only recently that we've seen hackers and other cybercriminals shift their tactics to target Macs in addition to Windows PCs. Regardless of what platform you're using, you'll always need to be careful before you click, and especially so when downloading files or programs online. Okay, so... It says any search engine, but that's not, that's not really true. There are search engines that don't serve up ads first. Google has gotten really bad about this. It used to be that when you'd search on stuff, there was like a sidebar where it would use the terms you searched on to give you other relevant content and other ads and things. And and they were usually pretty well labeled as ads. Now, uh, the, the, the first results are not search results. They're ads. They're straight up ads. Uh, so somebody paid Google to say, when someone is searching for this, Give them this as a result first. And you actually, like this article says, you now have to scroll down a good bit. I mean, depending on how big your screen is, you might not see any real search results uh, on the first page until you start scrolling. And and because Google's an ad company, uh, they sell this ad space to pretty much anybody who's willing to pay for it. The bad guys are buying ad space. And so when you search on, in this case, it was a particular trading tool uh, and you expect the first results to be the actual trading tool you're getting uh, a malware campaign a malvertising campaign that has something that looks very similar to that and it looks like the one you want but it's not so just like not using the chrome browser don't use google search i know it's good yes i mean it's probably is one of the better search engines and it you know that has got a lot of technology behind it but you because it's the most popular, then it's going to be the one most targeted. And because it serves ads first, companies like this are going to buy that ad space to try to trick you into clicking on the wrong things, malicious things in some cases. So don't use Google search. Use Brave search or maybe DuckDuckGo. They are much better. And while they do have some ads, they're contextual, based, they're contextual ads. And my guess is that the, the malvertising campaigns don't target them nearly as much. But nevertheless, you, sh- you still need to be careful. So I guess in that sense, the article is right. You may get some ads first. Uh, just be sure you see what's ads. They are not your search results. And you should be suspect of those. All right, moving on. We have a little bit of an update on the LastPass breach or really the impacts of the LastPass breach. And we are finally, uh, apparently starting to see what the people who stole all this data are trying to use it for. This is from Krebs on Security. In November 2022, the password manager service LastPass disclosed a breach in which hackers stole password vaults containing both encrypted and plain text data for more than 25 million users. Since then, a steady trickle of six-figure cryptocurrency heists targeting security-conscious people throughout the tech industry has led some security experts to conclude that crooks likely have succeeded in cracking open some of the stolen LastPass vaults. Taylor Monahan is lead product manager for Metamask a popular software cryptocurrency wallet used to interact with the Ethereum blockchain. Since late December 2022, Monahan and other researchers have identified a highly reliable set of clues that they say connect recent thefts targeting more than 150 people. Collectively, these individuals have robbed more than $35 million worth of crypto. Monahan said virtually all the victims she has assisted were longtime cryptocurrency investors and security-minded individuals. Importantly, none appeared to have suffered the sorts of attacks that typically preface a high-dollar crypto heist, such as the compromise of one's email and or mobile phone accounts. Monahan has been documenting the crypto thefts via Twitter since March of 2023, frequently expressing frustration in the search for a common cause among the victims. Then, on October 28th, Monahan said she'd concluded that the common thread among nearly every victim was that they'd previously used LastPass to store their seed phrase, the private key needed to unlock access to their cryptocurrency investments. Armed with your secret seed phrase, anyone can instantly access all of the cryptocurrency holdings tied to that cryptographic key and move funds to anywhere they like. Which is why the best practice for many cybersecurity enthusiasts has long been to store their seed phrases either in some type of encrypted container, like a password manager, or else inside an offline special-purpose hardware encryption device, such as a Trezor or Leisure wallet. And this is a quote from Nick Bax, who's the director of analytics at Unciphered, quote, The seed phrase is literally the money. If you have my seed phrase, you can copy and paste into that wallet, and then you can see all my accounts, and you can transfer my funds, end Back said the only obvious commonality between the victims who agreed to be interviewed was that they had stored their seed phrases for their cryptocurrency wallets in LastPass. Another quote from Back's quote, On top of the overlapping indicators of compromise, there are more circumstantial behavior patterns and tradecraft, which are also consistent between different thefts and support the conclusion. I'm confident enough that this is a real world problem that I've been urging my friends and family who use LastPass to change all of their passwords and migrate any crypto that may have been exposed, despite knowing full well how tedious that is, unquote. LastPass declined to answer questions about the research highlighted in the story, citing an ongoing law enforcement investigation and pending litigation against the company in response to its 2020 data breach. According to MetaMask's Monahan, users who stored any important passwords with LastPass, particularly those related to cryptocurrency accounts, should change those credentials immediately and migrate any crypto holdings to new offline hardware wallets. If you also had passwords tied to banking or retirement accounts, or even just important email accounts... Now would be a good time to change those credentials as well. Bax and Monaghan both acknowledged that their research alone can probably never conclusively tie dozens of high-dollar crypto heists over the past year to the last past breach. But Bax says at this point, he doesn't see any other possible explanation. And one final quote from Bax quote. Some might say it's dangerous to assert a strong connection here, but I'd say it's dangerous to assert there isn't one. I was arguing with my fiance about this last night. She's waiting for LastPass to tell her to change everything. Meanwhile, I'm telling her to do it now, unquote. So we did think it was kind of weird that right after the LastPass breach that there weren't a lot of reported incidents that seemed to have been tied back to that. And now this this long later, it seems like maybe the, the real focus was, you know, targeting people that they believed had substantial cryptocurrency holdings and you know, taking their computers and and turning them onto those encrypted vaults to try to crack them, uh, knowing that there would be a big payoff at the other end of that. And to me, that sounds like North Korea because I know that that's, that's kind of their thing. Uh, but who knows? The point is, the last best breach was not good if you didn't have a strong master password at the time of the theft, in other words, changing it after the fact doesn't help you, then you should assume that that data is vulnerable and anything that was in the your vault at that time, particularly passwords, should be changed. And if there are secrets in there that you can't change, like your social security number and things like that, then you need to be prepared uh, you know, again for possible identity theft. But uh, What this article seems to be saying, and since I've seen no other articles about other types of attacks targeting people who were affected by the LastPass breach, this seems to be where the bad guys are currently focused. Whoever stole this data seems to be using it to try to find crypto wallet keys uh, stored in these encrypted LastPass vaults to steal their money. So if for some reason, if that is you, if you had a crypto wallet seed phrase stored in LastPass last year, then you should, if you've got significant holdings, take the opportunity now to shift that around somewhere else because you may be targeted and that those funds may be stolen. All right, next up, this is a story about the Apple CSAM protections that they were planning to implement actually started to roll out a couple years ago and they got so much pushback uh, that they finally paused it and then eventually killed it. And uh, we thought that might be the end of the story, but it turns out there is a group of concerned individuals that are trying to pressure Apple into putting it back. Uh, And Apple had a very thoughtful and I think well-reasoned response to this. And so uh, this was covered in an article recently by Wired. In December, Apple said that it was killing an effort to design a privacy-preserving iCloud photo-scanning tool for detecting child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, on the platform. Originally announced in August of 2021, the project had been controversial since, since its inception. Apple had first paused it that September in response to concerns from digital rights groups and researchers that such a tool would inevitably be abused and exploited to compromise the privacy and security of all iCloud users. This week, a new child safety group known as Heat Initiative told Apple that it is organizing a campaign to demand that the company, quote, detect, report and remove, unquote, child sexual abuse material from iCloud and offer more tools for users to report CSAM to the company. Today, and this would have been, I think, last week. In a rare move, Apple responded to Heat Initiative, outlining its reasons for abandoning the development of its iCloud CSAM scanning feature, and instead focusing on a set of on-device tools and resources for users known collectively as communication safety features. The company's response to Heat Initiative, which Apple shared with Wired this morning, offers a rare look not just at its rationale for pivoting to communication safety, but at its broader views on creating mechanisms to circumvent user privacy protections, such as encryption, to monitor data. This stance is relevant to the encryption debate more broadly, especially as countries like the United Kingdom weigh passing laws that would require tech companies to be able to access user data to comply with law enforcement requests, which is the online safety bill that we just talked about a minute ago. And this is a quote from Eric Neuenschwander, who's Apple's director of user privacy and child safety. And as part of his response, Eric said, quote, child sexual abuse material is abhorrent. And we are committed to breaking the chain of coercion and influence that makes children susceptible to it. Unquote. He added, though, that after collaborating with an array of privacy and security researchers, digital rights groups, and child safety advocates, the company concluded that it could not proceed with the development of a CSAM scanning tool mechanism, even one built specifically to preserve privacy. This is another quote from Eric quote. Scanning every user's privately stored iCloud data would create new threat vectors for data thieves to find and exploit. It would also inject the potential for a slippery slope of unintended consequences. Scanning for one type of content, for instance, opens the door for bulk surveillance and, would, and could create a desire to search other encrypted messaging systems across content types, unquote. Heat Initiative is led by Sarah Gardner, former vice president of external affairs for the nonprofit Thorn, which works to use new technologies to combat child sexual exploitation online and sex trafficking. In 2021, Thorn lauded Apple's plan to develop an iCloud CSAM scanning feature. Gardner said in an email to CEO Tim Cook on Wednesday, August August 30th, which Apple also shared with Wired, that Heat Initiative found Apple's decision to kill the feature quote-unquote disappointing. And this is also from the letter uh, the Gardner wrote, quote, Apple is one of the most successful companies in the world with an army of world-class engineers. It is their responsibility to design a safe, privacy-forward environment that allows for the detection of known child sexual abuse images and videos. For as long as people can share and store a known image of a child being raped in iCloud, we will demand that they do better, unquote. In the email to Cook, Gardner wrote that Apple's photo scanning tool, quote, not only positioned Apple as a global leader in user privacy, but also promised to eradicate millions of child sexual abuse images and videos from iCloud. Child sexual abuse is a difficult issue that no one wants to talk about, which is why it gets silenced and left behind. We are here to make sure that doesn't happen, unquote. Apple maintains that ultimately, even its own well intentioned design could not be adequately safeguarded in practice, and that on device nudity, nudity detections for features like messages, FaceTime, AirDrop, and the photo picker are safer alternatives. Apple has also begun offering an Application Programming Interface, or API, for its communication safety features so third party developers can incorporate them into their apps. Apple says that the communication platform Discord is integrating this feature and that app makers broadly have been enthusiastic about adopting them. And this is another quote from the Apple representative, quote, we decided to not proceed with the proposal for a hybrid client-server approach to CSAM detection for iCloud photos from a few years ago. We concluded that it was not practically possible to implement without ultimately imperiling the security and privacy of our users, unquote. On Heat's initiative request that Apple create a CSAM reporting mechanism for users, the company told Wired that its focus is on connecting its vulnerable or victimized users directly with local resources and law enforcement in their region that can assist them, rather than Apple positioning itself as an intermediary for processing reports. The company says that offering this intermediary service may make sense for interactive platforms like social networks. The need to protect children from online sexual abuse is urgent, though. And as these concerns intersect with the broader encryption debate, Apple's resolve on refusing to implement data scanning will continue to be tested. So I believe this is pretty much what I said when this whole thing started a couple of years ago. And that is, this is a slippery slope. And for Apple to change their technology to allow for scanning of images of certain known content on their devices would would really open up a floodgate for repressive regimes like for example Saudi Arabia will come to Apple and say I want you to scan for pictures of men kissing uh, or gay activity of one sort or another because that's highly punishable in, in that state in fact I think it might be a cause for execution China may come to Apple and say we want you to find pictures of Winnie the Pooh because because a lot of dissidents apparently use this image, and uh, President Xi has been compared to for some reason. I don't see it, Winnie the Pooh, uh, and he hates that. But you know, maybe it could also be used to identify uh, known dissidents, for example. The same technology that could be used to scan for known images of child sexual abuse material, which is obviously horrible, is the same technology that could be used for a lot of other purposes. And Apple, I think it's basically and rightly decided that it just, it can't do this. And it's, it's come up with some other techniques to, you know, stop the easy transmission reception or, or transmission of nudity, for example, it doesn't prevent it, but it, you know, it, it intercepts and says, do you really want to send this, or do you really want to look at this? I think this is the right call. And obviously, you know. Child sexual abuse and terrorism, these things are always going to be horrible, horrible, horrific things that we want to do everything we can to stop, but everything within reasons and without trampling on human rights and without invading our privacy and subverting our ability to have a private life. Okay, let's move on. This next one's from Vice. Cities across the country are suing Kia and Hyundai for failing to install basic anti-theft technology, with a subsequent massive surge of stolen cars burdening police departments, according to lawsuits filed in recent months. Since the beginning of the year, Seattle, Baltimore, Cleveland, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, and Columbus have all sued Kia and Hyundai, which are owned by the same parent company. For selling cars without engine immobilizers, a technology that has served as a major contributor to the plummeting rate of stolen vehicles in the U.S. As the rest of the industry adopted immobilizers, Kia and Hyundai didn't, with only 26% of their cars including them in 2015, compared to 96% for other manufacturers. Without the immobilizers, the cars are trivially easy to steal, requiring just a USB cable. And I talked about this uh, a little while back when this story first broke. A viral YouTube and TikTok trend instructed people how to steal the cars. Kia and Hyundai cars manufactured without the immobilizers between 2015 and 2020, especially lower-end models like the Accent, Rio, and Sportage, are especially vulnerable. A lawsuit filed by dozens of insurance companies against Kia and Hyundai alleged the lack of immobilizers violated federal regulations. The surge in Kia and Hyundai thefts in cities around the country has been staggering, and it shows no signs of abating. In a lawsuit filed last week, the city of Chicago said that in 2022, more than 8,800 Kia and Hyundai vehicles were stolen in the city, which accounts for 41% of all of Chicago's car thefts. Despite Kia and Hyundai making up just 7%, of the city's vehicles. In a press release announcing the lawsuit, the city said it is getting even worse in 2023, with Kias and Hyundais making up more than half of all stolen cars in the city this year. Chicago is hardly alone. In Seattle, thefts of Hyundais and Kias in July 2022 increased 620% over the prior year. In Baltimore, the Hyundai and Kia thefts doubled from 2021 to 2022, and the city's lawsuit said it expects thefts in 2023 to double again because more Hyundais and Kias had already been stolen through May of 2023 than in all of 2022. In Cleveland, there were 475 thefts of Hyundais and Kias in December 2022 alone, and a 622% increase in January 2023 from a year prior. And in New York City, 977 Hyundais and Kias were stolen in the first four months of 2023, a 660% increase compared to the same amount of time in 2022. But none of these cities can match what happened in Milwaukee, largely credited as the epicenter of the quote-unquote Kia Boys social media trend. By 2021, according to the same text used in each of these cities' lawsuits, the theft of Hyundais and Kias became a veritable crime spree, increasing 2,500% from a year prior. An average of 16 Kias and Hyundais were being stolen each day. The story is the same, even in cities that haven't sued. In Saint Petersburg, Florida, 41 percent of the vehicles stolen are Kia's and Hyundai's without immobilizers. A similar surge in Kia and Hyundai thefts is happening in Los Angeles, Detroit, Norfolk, Burlington, Portland, Oregon, Charlotte, Omaha, Louisville, and Saint Paul. In statements to Motherboard, Kia spokesperson James Bell said the lawsuits filed by cities against the company were "quote unquote" without merit, and that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the NHTSA, determined to it did not violate any regulations or safety standards. In June, NHTSA's acting associate director of enforcement, Kem Hadapoglu, responded to 18 states attorneys general that asked for a recall of the cars by saying, quote, at this time, NHTSA has not determined that this issue constitutes either a safety defect or noncompliance requiring a recall, unquote. An NHTSA spokesperson told Motherboard the agency had been meeting with Kia and Hyundai about the issue, but wouldn't say if it agreed with Kia's interpretation. Hyundai spokesperson Ira Gabriel similarly said that all its vehicles are, are, quote, fully compliant with federal anti-theft requirements, unquote. Hyundai and Kia owners can get steering wheel locks from their local police departments or through dedicated websites. Both companies also offer a free software patch that they say removes the threat of theft, which requires visiting a dealer. Bell of Kia says the company has distributed more than 190,000 wheel locks, and that 650,000 vehicles have gotten the software update out of 3 million total. Both companies now include immobilizers on all their new cars. So, uh, if you have a Hyundai or a Kia, especially one of the lower cost models, and in recent years, you probably should not park it out in public and leave it there including probably in your driveway, and you should probably get one of these uh, these wheel locks, which if, I remember these were big back in the day. I don't know why, but it's this metal bar that you put through your steering wheel and then lock it there, So, which basically makes your car undrivable. I don't know what they cost, but uh, if I was driving a Kia or a Hyundai that did not have an immobilizer, I would be getting one of those ASAP. Okay, moving on. Next up, this is from Gizmodo, and it's about a report that Mozilla just put out uh, from its Privacy Not Included initiative, which is really mind-blowing. Bad news. Your car is a spy. If your vehicle was made in the last few years, you're probably driving around in a data-harvesting machine that may collect personal information as sensitive as your race, weight, and sexual activity. Volkswagen's cars can reportedly know if you fastened your seatbelt and how hard you hit the brakes. That's according to new findings from Mozilla's Privacy Not Included project. The nonprofit found that every major car brand fails to adhere to the most basic privacy and security standards in new internet-connected models. And all 25 of the brands Mozilla examined flunked the organization's test. Mozilla found brands including BMW, Ford, Toyota, Tesla, and Subaru collect data about drivers including race, facial expressions, weight, health information, and where you drive. Some of the cars tested collected data you wouldn't expect your car to know about, including details about sexual activity, race, and immigration status, according to Mozilla. And this is a quote from Jen Caltrider, who's the program director, I guess, for the Privacy Not Included project. uh, In a press release, Uh, Jen says, quote, many people think of their car as a private space, somewhere to call your doctor, have a personal conversation with your kid on the way to school, cry your eyes out over a breakup, or drive places you might not want the world to know about. But that perception no longer matches reality. All new cars today are privacy nightmares on wheels that collect huge amounts of personal information, unquote. Modern cars use a variety of data harvesting tools, including microphones, cameras, and the phones drivers connect to their cars. Manufacturers also collect data through their apps and websites and can then sell or share that data with third parties. The worst offender was Nissan, Mozilla said. The carmaker's privacy policy suggests that the manufacturer collects information including sexual activity, health diagnosis data, and genetic data, though there's no details on how exactly that data is gathered. Nissan reserves the right to share and sell, quote, preferences, characteristics, psychological trends, predispositions, behavior, attitudes, intelligence, abilities, and aptitudes, unquote, to data brokers, law enforcement, and other third parties. Other brands didn't fare much better. Volkswagen, for example, collects your driving behaviors, such as your seatbelt and braking habits, and pairs that with details such as age and gender for targeted advertising. Kia's privacy policy reserves the right to monitor your quote-unquote sex life, and Mercedes-Benz ships cars with TikTok pre-installed on the infotainment system, an app that has its own thicket of privacy problems. The privacy and security problems extend beyond the nature of the data car companies siphon off of you. Mozilla said it was unable to determine whether the brands encrypt any of the data they collect. Mozilla also found that many car brands engage in quote-unquote privacy washing or presenting consumers with information that suggests they don't have to worry about privacy issues when the exact opposite is true. Many leading manufacturers are signatories to the Alliance for Automotive Innovation's consumer privacy protection principles. According to Mozilla, these are a non-binding set of vague promises organized by the car manufacturers themselves. Brian Weiss, a spokesperson for the Alliance for Automation Innovation, shared a link to a letter the organization wrote to Congress about its privacy principles. These principles are, quote, in effect today and enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission, unquote, according to Weiss. Questions around consent are essentially a joke as well. Subaru, for example, says that by being a passenger in the car, you are considered a, quote unquote, user who has given the company consent to harvest information about you. Mozilla said a number of car brands say it's the driver's responsibility to let passengers know about their car's privacy policies, as if the privacy policies are comprehensible to the drivers in the first place. Toyota, for example, has a constellation of 12 different privacy policies for your reading pleasure. So this article blew me away, and I started to read the actual article, and I immediately reached out to Andrea Mico from Privacy for Cars to to talk to him about this. And he actually has put me in touch with uh, Jen Caltrider, the person I just quoted in this article. So we are communicating, and I would love to get her on the show to dig into this in depth. Uh, So stay tuned. Hopefully that will happen. But i would read this report uh uh, there's a link in the show notes to the article which has a link to the the full report and the report actually has individual subsections for each manufacturer and so you might want to go and look up your car specifically to see what they're doing but i knew i I just recently bought myself a a, an electric vehicle and i i knew when i bought it that it had a built-in cellular modem and that it was chock full of sensors like most cars have a lot of sensors. EVs have a ridiculous amount of sensors built into them, and almost all modern cars actually now do. And like I said, they've got built-in cellular modems that are automatically and constantly sending this quote-unquote telemetry data back to the manufacturer, and who knows what they are doing with it. We don't, because we've got no privacy laws that require them to tell us. I'd be curious to know if in Europe, uh, under GDPR, if, if some of these companies have had to come clean and be more transparent. I would think they would have to. But cars... (laughs) <laughs> this is a big deal. And I, I, I really love the fact that Privacy for Cars exists and they're trying to make this more of a, an issue. They've got their privacy tools, which are great. Uh, this is going to explode and, and it's, it needs to happen sooner rather than later. So hopefully this particular report will raise a lot of hackles and get a lot of, hopefully, government types involved because this is just ridiculous. Uh, by the way, I would also just, I would love to know how on earth these cars are somehow recording sexual activity? I mean, the old bumper sticker of, you know, if the van's rocking, don't come knocking. Uh, maybe they've got sensors for that now. I don't know. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Just just horrible. Okay, one last story before our tip of the week. Uh, and this is from Tech Explorer. Google Chrome browser extensions expose users to hackers who can easily tap into their private data, including social security numbers, passwords, and banking information, according to researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The researchers further uncovered vulnerabilities involving passwords that are stored in plain text within HTML source code on websites of some of the world's largest corporate giants, including Google, Amazon, Citibank, Capital One, and the Internal Revenue Service. The problem stems from the manner in which extensions access internal web page code. Google offers thousands of extensions that users install to handle calendar events, password management, ad blocking, email access, bookmark storage, translation, and search activities. While such extensions help expand user browser capabilities and make browsing easier, they also expose stored data to intruders, said Asmit Nayak, a computer science graduate student at UWM. And this is a quote from Nayak, quote, In the absence of any protective measures, as seen on websites like irs.gov, Capital One, Usenix, Google, and Amazon, sensitive data such as social security numbers and credit card information are immediately accessible to all extensions running on that page. This presents a significant security risk as private data is left vulnerable, unquote. The threat remains despite protective measures introduced by Google this year that have been embraced by most browsers. And I think that's referring to the manifest V3 changes, which we've talked about here before. The protocol placed stricter limits on what kinds of information extensions can access, but there remains no protective layer between web pages and browser extensions. So bad actors can still evade detection. The researchers described the alarming discovery of passwords stored in plain text, HTML web page source files. Another quote from Nyack: quote, a significant percentage of extensions possess the necessary permissions to exploit these vulnerabilities, unquote, adding that he and his two colleagues identified 190 extensions, quote, that directly access password fields, unquote. To test their suspicions about vulnerabilities, the researchers uploaded an extension that could exploit extension weaknesses and steal plain text passwords from HTML pages of websites. It contained no malicious code, so it passed security screening at Google's Chrome Web Store. The ease with which the researchers uploaded a potentially harmful extension, quote, Underscores the urgent need for more robust security measures, unquote, according to NIAC. The researchers disabled the extension after they established it could bypass security measures and read restricted data. Nyak said the extension faults stemmed from two key procedural violations in coding, least privilege and complete mediation. Least privilege refers to the principle that users and systems should be granted only the lowest level of access privilege required to complete tasks. Any unnecessary privilege should be barred. Default access states should be deny or not allow. Complete mediation refers to evaluation of each and every access request with no deviations or exceptions. The researchers propose two means to address the problem. The first is a JavaScript add-on for all extensions that provides solid cover for sensitive input fields. The second proposal is to add a browser feature that alerts users when an attempt is made to access sensitive data. The report, called Exposing and Addressing Security Vulnerabilities in Browser Text Input Fields, raised particular alarm over vulnerabilities at two major websites. And this is from the report. It says, quote, major online marketplaces such as Google and Amazon do not implement any protections for credit card input fields. In these cases, credit card details, including the security code and zip code, are visible in plain text on the web page. This presents a significant security risk, as any malicious extension could potentially access and steal this sensitive information. The lack of protection on these websites is particularly concerning, concerning, given their scale and the volume of transactions they handle daily, unquote. In response to the report, an Amazon spokesperson said, quote, we encourage browser and extension developers to use security best practices to further protect customers using their services, unquote. A Google spokesperson said they were looking into the matter. Now, I know this sounds alarming, um, <laughs> and that it, it might well be this bad, uh, but here's the real takeaway as far as I'm concerned. You should always assume that whatever browser extensions you install on your browser you know, for example, you block is one uh, most password managers have a browser extension, which helps you to fill in your passwords automatically that those are all great uses. Uh, but you should assume that whatever these software plugins are, have full access to anything on every web page you go to. That's how a lot of them do what they need to do. And so what this is saying, I think, is that when you go to web pages that have form fields where you fill in, you know, data like social security number, name, address, phone number, uh, credit card numbers, passwords. These are text fields on the web page and the, the web page data, including the pictures and the images and the text and the formatting and everything you see, including the values that you type in are available in what's called a DOM, a document object model. And this is a tree of data, you know, the root of which is like web page. And then from there, it's like, you know, the paragraphs you know are maybe subsections, and then there's a form and then form fields, and within those form fields there might be certain others, you know checkboxes and things. this this tree of data, this tree of information is is what really makes up every web page. And in order to do what a lot of extensions need to do, they need access to the DOM, which is all the, all the data on the web page. So if you're filling in these forms with sensitive information, it does not actually shock me at all that these extensions would have access to these things. For example, password managers have to have access to these things in order to fill these things in. Or if you're signing up for a new page and it realizes, hey, that person just filled in a, a sign-up form for a website, I should offer to save that password for them in their in their password manager. Because I recognize that that was a password field they just filled in for a site that I didn't know about. So this doesn't shock me at all. So the real takeaway for me in all this is, don't install any extensions you don't absolutely need. You know, maybe you trust them now, but I've seen a lot of cases where extensions are abandoned and then picked up by bad guys who kind of swoop in and take them over. Or sometimes these extensions, uh, you know, somebody sells out and sells their extension to somebody else. And the, the next owner of that has bad intentions. So for me, I, I limit my extensions to like two or three. And they're all security and privacy ones. There's a lot of really helpful extensions out there that would be fun that would be interesting like the I think it's Honey the one that helps you find deals so I guess you know you go to some website and you're shopping on a deal and I think the way Honey works is it's kind of pay attention to stuff on the page and it's looking on the internet and say oh hey you could get this cheaper somewhere else I can understand how that's really helpful but man I <laughs> Uh, it's just too dangerous. These extensions have a lot of power. Uh, I think there's only actually so much that the browser vendors can do. They, these guys suggested a couple of things, and I think one of them was kind of hokey. I think it was really kind of a matter of trying to obfuscate some of these fields that I don't think really worked. It, then it could also maybe ask for permissions, you know, maybe if these form fields were tagged correctly like this is a password field, and this is a credit card number field, and this is a social security number field, this is an email field, the things that might be sensitive, you know, then maybe, you know, you would have to grant permissions to some of these extensions to have access to form fields that are labeled with these private tags. That is an idea, but you know, people are really tired of trying to dig through permissions and stuff, and they're likely to just say, yeah, yeah, whatever, just take all take all the permissions you want. So, Again, my takeaway at the end of the day is just remove any extensions you don't absolutely need. It's just, it's just too dangerous. Okay. So that is our news for the week. And now it's time for the tip of the week. And this brings us to the final and fourth phase of our ongoing series on how to protect your home network. And now we are finally at the like, do something phase. We're we're at the phase where it's time to actually get stuff done uh what i call the remediate phase so we've already done the scanning we've done simplifying we've done assessing and now it's time to remediate and so i've got a much longer article on this that i actually recommend that you read but i'm going to go through the highlights really quickly here just to uh, wrap up this series on protecting your home network so we we've we've got an exhaustive list of all the devices on our network now we've looked at them to figure out how to update them uh, if we can update them uh, how old they are if if they're if they're currently supported If they have the capability to automatically update themselves we've also taken a good hard look at our home routers to make sure that we control them in other words that's one that we bought not one that was given to us by our ISP and we figured out how to get to the administrator page of those devices and made sure um, that we've kind of poked around in the settings and we are now ready at this point to actually do stuff so first and foremost let's look at our router because your router really is basically the bouncer for your home network. It is the, the guard at the door uh, who only lets in connections that are approved. And generally speaking, the way this really works with a firewall, uh, with your router, is that only outbound connections are allowed. The responses to those connections, those requests can come back, but it doesn't generally allow unsolicited requests to come from the broader internet into a device in your house. That is generally blocked. It's usually like a one-way data valve. That's the firewall feature. So here are the things you're gonna wanna do to make sure you've updated and secured your your home router. Uh, If it has a default administrator password, make sure you change that. You might want to consider changing your Wi-Fi name if it's something default or if it has maybe your name in it, something that might identify you. This is maybe particularly important if you're in a very densely populated place like an apartment complex or or maybe a series of townhomes or things like that where there's a lot of people in close proximity, you know, you you don't necessarily want to advertise which network is your network. So you might want to change your Wi-Fi name. You also, if you haven't turned on uh, an encryption, a, a password to access your Wi-Fi, you absolutely need to do that. And you want to use a more recent standard like WPA2 or WPA3. One quick note, if you do change your Wi-Fi name or if you change your Wi-Fi password, that will affect everything that's connected to your Wi-Fi because now their credentials that they're trying to use to connect your Wi-Fi are no longer good. So just be careful and and be planned for this. If you're going to change your Wi-Fi name and or your Wi-Fi access password, then every device connected via Wi-Fi is going to have to be updated accordingly. But that's you're you're kind of doing that now anyway. So now's the good time to do it if you're going to do it because you're going to go to all your devices. But just know that you're going to have to reconfigure them to connect to the to the new uh, Wi-Fi name and password if you change those. Obviously, you need to update your router software, the firmware that runs on your router. So we should have already done the research on this uh, before. Uh, And now is the time to do it. Uh, Make sure your router uh, firmware has been updated to the latest and greatest. And if it has the capability to automatically update, I would absolutely turn that on. If for some reason your firewall is not on by default, almost all routers have them, and almost all routers have those on by default. If for some reason yours is off, I would absolutely turn that on as a major, major security feature that you want. All right, the next thing you're going to want to do is go through your exhaustive list of all the devices that are connected to your Wi Fi router, uh, either by cable ethernet cable or more likely wirelessly and you're going to want to look at each of those devices and do the following things if that device has the ability to do automatic software updates absolutely enable this if they don't then you're going to want to make sure that it has the latest and greatest software and do whatever is necessary to get that updated you might have to go you might have to use a companion app on your phone to connect communicate with it and get it to update its software Uh, it might have a web page administrator interface kind of like your router we, but we should have already done that research in the in the previous uh, steps for this and know how to do that. And so now is the time to actually execute that and get that done. You should also take the time for however your device is kind of configured to look through all the settings, particularly look through anything labeled security and privacy. Um, if there's anything in there for quote unquote, more relevant ads or improved customer experience, that just means they want to track you. I would turn all of that off. If there's any other sharing things like sharing telemetry data, sharing you know usage statistics, even if it says anonymously, honestly, I would I would just turn that off. A lot of these companies, they say these things are anonymous, but it's really not that hard to de-identify this data sometimes. I would just not share. Also, if for some reason your device talks to other devices or other services, sometimes, for example, your your Amazon Echo devices, you can install plugins that allow it to talk to other services. Review all of those and make sure that you absolutely need them. That's a a really common place for security and privacy failures is through these third-party interfaces. It's kind of like extensions on your web browser. Um, so, or if there's you know, if there's other services that these things might work with, these integrations, just review them all and check all the permissions you've given these devices if they have any to make sure they really absolutely need them and dial those back. And then finally, as a thought experiment, as you're going through each of these devices, I want you to think about what would happen, what the consequences would be, what the risks are if this device were to somehow fail. Maybe it stops working, maybe it's compromised. For example, there's been a lot of stories recently about cloud-based services that when they go out of business uh, or if their servers just go down for some reason, maybe they're under some sort of a cyber attack or have some sort of glitch, that the devices that 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 use those services become bricks, basically unusable. Like if, if without the cloud service, they will not operate even if theoretically and technically they could. Some of them are still tied to cloud services such that if those cloud services are no longer available, the devices themselves become unusable. So think about what data they may store. Uh, Think about what they may have access to that you might lose access to if they were to, to stop working, and then come up with a backup plan. And that backup plan may be to get a different device that doesn't have this vulnerability. So last but not least, think about any of these devices that you could move from your main Wi-Fi network to your guest Wi-Fi network. And these IoT devices are historically bad when it comes to security. They're cheap. They have low profit margins. Security takes time and effort, and a lot of companies just don't put it in there. So they're just not trustworthy. So I regularly recommend that people turn on their guest network and put their IoT devices on the guest network so that they're at least segregated and all these kind of untrustworthy things are kind of off in a sandbox on their own and they cannot directly speak to or probe the more important devices on your main network like your computers and your tablets and your i you know your smartphones and things like that so segregate the devices that way and I actually had a reader uh on social media reach out to me who've been paying attention to these uh, articles in the podcast with another interesting idea. And this and that is parental controls. So shout out to Katzenberger who suggested this to me. Uh, I think it was on uh, Mastodon. And that is a, a lot of modern browsers actually have built in parental controls. And while you might not have kids, you turns out you can actually use these parental controls to actually limit your the devices on your network. So, you know, maybe you want your kid to not be able to use their laptop, you know, from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. You could, you know, find that device on your on your router and invoke parental controls and turn off the internet after that time. But you could also turn internet access off for some devices that you just don't want to talk to the internet at all. Maybe you want them to be able to talk locally. Maybe you've got a bunch of smart lights that want to talk to each other, but you don't want them tattling on you back to the the, the manufacturer. Through parental controls, depending on how they're set up on your router, you might be able to do some clever things to kind of rein in what they can do so that's something you might want to look at so there you have it our four that's the end of our four-part series on securing your home network there are four long articles that 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 go through each of the phases that i've laid out so if you missed any or if you want to go back uh, there's also a lot of helpful links and more information in those articles that i can cover here in the show Uh, so anyway look at the show notes to find the links to those articles or just go to firewalls don't stop dragons and search for securing your network and you'll find those articles so there you have it your news and your tip of the week All right, everybody, there's your show for the week. You can always tell my, my voice is, so let get a little hoarse toward the end of these shows. And you'd think that for many, many years of doing this, my voice would be able to handle that. But I, I can hear it myself. It's, just, it's just, just weird. But anyway, there's your news and your tip of the week. Next week, we've got an amazing interview with Kashmir Hill. Cannot wait for you to hear that. It was great. I am also can't wait to, to go back and fully read her book, Your Face Belongs to Us, because it's really, really fascinating. So we're going to be talking about Clearview AI and facial recognition uh, next week. I've got an interview with Andy Yen coming up and an interview with Nick Oles coming up about fishing. I'm going to be talking with Corey Doctro soon. And I've got some other really great interviews all being lined up just for you. So uh, if you haven't already subscribed in that way, you won't miss any of them. Check me out on all the social media. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and go to my contact page, you can find links to all my social media there, including Mastodon and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter slash X, uh, Blue Sky even now. All my information is there. And I will try to, like I did with these Apple updates, by the way, when there's something hot, when there's a really hot tip, uh, you know, something really urgent, uh, I will post that on social media. Most likely Twitter, Mastodon, Facebook, and Blue Sky. If you read the book and enjoyed it, I would love to get a great review on Amazon. If you're really enjoying the podcast, I would also love to get a nice five-star review on Apple's iTunes. That's where most people go to look for uh, for reviews, or I guess Spotify. That's probably a popular one too. Those really, really do help. So if you if you wouldn't mind doing that, I would very much appreciate it. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Take care out there. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.